0: Hi, it's Mike Wheeler, co-host with Kim Leary of the podcast we recently launched as One Step Ahead. Early in the coming year, we'll rename it Agility at Work, as that clearly links Kim's focus on adaptive leadership with mine on agile negotiation. Right now, given the holiday rush, we're going to take a short break until early January. Then we'll kick off 2020 by talking with our colleague, Mike Luca, about his research about how buyers and sellers negotiate on platforms like eBay and Craigslist. In the meantime, happy holiday season. Hi, this is Mike Wheeler, co-host of One Step Ahead. I'm here with Kim Leary from the Kennedy School. Hi, Kim. Hi, Mike. Good morning. Good morning. I must say, a little poignant, I had a nice time yesterday, but probably the last sail of the season, we're into fall here in Massachusetts, and um, it was a little chilly on the boat, uh, and spring will come, but it's a long way away. What are you up to?
1: So the fall is unfolding so fast, you're right. I'm launching a new class in just two weeks, and the semester is just unfolding rapidly.
0: Yeah. And the class is?
1: It's a new class at the Kennedy School called Leading Teams for Public Impact.
0: How is that different from the adaptive leadership course? Is that the right title for it?
1: That's right. So, you know, when we think about leadership, exercising leadership, it, of course, always occurs in a particular context. And teams are increasingly becoming the vehicle for practicing adaptive leadership or working on, more broadly, adaptive challenges. You bring people together with different kinds of expertise because they have to work on problems that don't fit neatly within one sector or one office anymore
0: well my field which complements uh, yours is agile negotiation I think it's more than complements it over, overlaps it and today we're going to have the great opportunity to, to our friend and um, and colleague Debbie Kolb and Debbie is the author of a number of books that in my view bridge leadership, end negotiation. So I hope we'll bring her in shortly and start the conversation.
1: Yes, and I think she's got a lot to say about this really critical space of being able to work in the environment you're in while also creating the conditions to change it. So good morning, Debbie, and welcome. Thank
0: you very much. Happy to be here. And the Debbie in question is Debbie Kolb, author of a number of books, as a matter of fact, including negotiating at work, negotiation at work, I should say. It might, might have been the gerund, though. It is the gerund. An, it's an active uh, it's Well, an gerunds active are sort of active. <laughs> uh, I don't think I've used the word gerund in a long, long know, uh, right, right. time. But we're very interested in thinking about what some people call the negotiated order, the the unstated rules of the game and the rules may not always be fair rules and
1: the title of one of your earlier books is relevant here too the shadow negotiation so you you actually have a number of books including the shadow negotiation So negotiating at work, the shadow negotiation, take us into this territory of the culture at work and the negotiations that many people have to engage in well beyond
2: the substance. Right. So let me just go back to the shadow negotiation for a minute. Harvard Business Review named that is one of the best books the year it came out to, 2001. In the shadow negotiation, I was really, I interviewed, um, I, I taught women and I interviewed a lot of women about their negotiating experience. And at the same time, I was active at the program on negotiation. You
1: were the executive director.
2: Yes, I was, right. So, um, and what, you know, the way we think about negotiation, I always thought was in this incredibly rationalistic point of view, even though it has some relational parts to it. And the shadow negotiation, I saw as sort of unpacking some of the things that we don't talk about. And I talked about sort of advocacy and connection so the issue is how do you establish your place at the table to be negotiating some of the the moves that you would make to feel comfortable negotiating not get in your own way when you negotiate and then the second part was connection which is how you bring the other party in to the uh, into the negotiation
0: do you mean that literally or figuratively or maybe both but right? both yeah. you know
2: uh, you know, how do you create a, a positive space for them? How do you think about, again, their good reasons for doing things? See, the original moves and turns came out of the shadow negotiation because I had these cases that people were telling me about how they kept getting put down hmm. in negotiations. So I so think, well, how do you deal in those kind of situations? My The case of that was this a salesperson. She was taking over the role from her boss and he kept saying, how are you going to be able to do this? You can't do this. And he wouldn't give her the information. And, you know, it was this back and forth with them, and I realized how difficult it were, was was for her to take on this role if she didn't understand how to counter some of the things that he was doing.
1: So that's the move and, and the turn. The move
2: and the turn. And so that came out of the shadow negotiation. And then also what I call sort of appreciative moves, understanding people's good reasons why they are how you think about them, and trying to work more collaboratively. And the examples came from organizations.
0: A lot of your examples are appropriately drawn on how these negotiation orders sometimes are a stacked deck.
2: Right. So when I wrote The Shadow Negotiation, I got a lot of visibility, and I would give a lot of talks, and a lot of men would come up and ask me to sign it to their wives. And when it came into the second edition, we called it Everyday Negotiation, and I had a lot of stories of men in it, um, because they were saying to me, this is not just about gender. I always think about gender as a lens into—and I think the same thing holds true for race and culture— it's a lens for looking into processes that you think you understand, but you get a different perspective when you look at it, and it uncovers different kinds of things. For and example, so, well, I think the idea of moves and turns. I mean, I think that people uh, might try to undercut you. Um, I think the idea that if you if you don't feel very comfortable in a role, which sometimes people in organizations don't, then you can get in your own way when you negotiate, and so. Um, Those kinds of insights helped me think about the negotiated order and sort of the gendered negotiated order, much more so as I went on to write Negotiating at Work. So the first one is where I think I started to talk about those things and I kept up with them a little bit, but then I really shifted my focus because of my work that I was doing much more in organizations, Mm -hmm. I started to look more at what was happening, happening within organizations. I was just writing something, and you know, most of the research on gender negotiation, 80-something percent are laboratory studies of one-shot deals. 90-something percent of those, 90 percent of that, 80 percent? So 80 percent is in the lab. 90-something percent of those are only about one issue about money. Mm. And that's where all the findings come up from. About gender,
0: and most of the subjects are undergraduates, right? And most of
2: the subjects are undergraduates are the online things where people don't know each other, one-shot deal, and most of our understanding, and so so much of it then is about portraying women as deficient. Most of the studies are about compensation without thinking of the range of things that people have to negotiate about, and so. Um, uh, so, if
0: you take those off the table, or at least view them skeptically. What's a better source of information in terms of what's happening in the real world?
2: Well, so you know, if you look at studies of actual studies of people negotiating in the real world, women negotiate pretty much as frequently as men. Um, they don't necessarily do as well for lots of reasons, some of which has to do with the ways in which sometimes men are privileged because they're much better networked, um, but not necessarily so. And so I think that um, it, uh, it the women's efficiency story is not necessarily a story that comes when you actually look at people in organizations.
0: Yeah, can we stay with that for a moment? Because right. you know the literature, so does Kim, better than I. But I had thought I'm thinking of Linda Babcock and Hannah Bowles, for example. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Women don't ask, Yeah. right? Women uh, pay a price for asking.
0: But even when they do ask.
2: Yeah, but you know where this comes from? Videotaped things on survey from the laboratory. You know, when they do a study, when one of uh, a person that co- collaborated with Hannah and Linda did a study of uh, negotiating lactation rooms, how do you think men did? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Probably right. not very well, right. right.
2: Yeah. You know, so, uh, so th- that work is some of the things that aggravate me.
0: But I wondered, about I thought, and again, this may be the superficial stuff that we throw out mm-hmm. as well. You had said that women sometimes don't perform as effectively and that there are social reasons for that. I thought that there was a finding that said they don't perform as well advocating for themselves, but if they're advocating for others, they their organization. Or is that bogus, too?
2: That, it's not bogus. It just takes place in a laboratory. I see. When I discuss gender, I give that information, and then I have this wonderful graph from an article in Harvard Business Review that has men and women and men and women and self-esteem. You know, they say that women suffer from self esteem, not self-esteem, lack of self-esteem. And if you look at that, there's virtually no difference. And what um, this is, Kathy Tinsley, it's her work. And she said, the only real difference you can find between men and women consistently across the board is height. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're, men are taller. Yeah. But all these, other, all these other social things that they say, just they don't really hold up.
0: In terms of findings, and yet I find it hard to, it's funny that here I'm talking to women, that we're saying that it doesn't make a difference. I thought in another breath you said it does make a difference. Well, what
2: I said is that I think women have to negotiate for more things. So if you put things in a context, so it isn't, if you just study pay, you're only studying one thing. So it, when I look at negotiation in the workplace, women have to negotiate for more things, right? They're asked to do things they don't want to do. They're not on the screen for jobs. They do invisible work. They're more likely to negotiate work and personal life things. They're more likely to to be asked to take over failing things, like glass cliffs. They're more likely to have their authority challenged. All of those things are occasions for negotiation that I think disproportionately affect women because of the way our negotiated order, which I say, is is gendered. It's not saying anything about their ability to do those negotiations. The, the, The women don't ask. And this, uh, uh, this, this other work—you know—the social cost of asking, isn't about—it's about what you do, not the situations in which you find yourselves. So I'm focusing on situations that people find themselves. So the situation
1: seems to be changing in some ways. There's new data that's come out that suggests one in four CEO positions are now held by women. How do you understand that? Is—is that a dimension of? women learning to negotiate more broadly?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, I do think that there's been a move to try to change organizations and recognizing the importance of having diverse leadership. If you want to deal in the markets that you deal with, that it's really important. So I think people have made an effort to do it. And I think more women on boards really make a difference in terms of having more women in leadership roles. Um, So I think all those things are correct. So how am I explaining it? I think you know, things are things are changing. The people that I'm dealing with are people. It's sort of the senior director or vice president levels. Some senior vice presidents. They still face negotiation challenges. For example, disproportionately, women get channeled into line uh, staff positions, which are not positions that lead to CEO positions. So, and so, negotiating to get the kind of role that will position you in that way um, would be something that um, you have to do. I don't. Um, I'm not bringing my hands and saying, too bad, it's horrible for women. They can't really succeed. I don't really believe that at all. Um, But I do believe, and I do think there's a lot of commitment to to changing the leadership of companies. I do agree with that. Mm
0: -hmm. It's interesting that there is this cultural framework that you've explored at the same time, a lot of your prescriptive advice I find is equally relevant to men as it as it is to women. That's what
2: I say. Study the, that's the canary in the mind, right? Study yeah. the study the problem situations, and you have information that works for everybody.
0: And you know,
1: I think also uh, for younger people in yep. companies, I hear from my students that uh, because of their youth, they feel that they're not likely to be exactly. taken seriously, as exactly. they have to negotiate exactly. many more parameters of their jobs. That's true. So this work, I think, is really critical. Yeah, I think
2: think it uh, works. It's interesting,
0: Kim, if we go back to the origin story in terms of negotiation uh, theory, getting to, yes, a very successful book and and so forth. But the notion there, at least implicit, is that power is your walkaway, is your batna. Right. And power is so much more than that. Right. Uh, And I think that that's what you've been studying for much of your Your career.
2: Right, but you know, when I talk about negotiating in organizations, I think people recognizing the BATNA is quite relative in your organization. It isn't walking out the door, Mm -hmm. I think about it. But you know, that's why I say anytime anybody asks you to do something, it's an opportunity to negotiate because you could be in a better bargaining position. They really want you, so they're more dependent on the deal as opposed to you might have other kinds of options. So I don't think it's walking out the door necessarily. I don't think it's walking the door at all, but I do think it's recognizing the, what are your, what are your alternatives? It, this is a story that I always use in my program because one of the women that runs the program tells the story. She was promoted to be the first woman appointed to the executive committee. And um, the executive committee sits on the third floor, you know, glass doors, guard outside the door, and she gets appointed. And the general counsel comes to her and says, we have a terrific office for you on the fourth floor. And she says, I think I'll stay where I am, right? So I think that's a great example of using a BATNA. She got the office on the third floor. You know, so I always have her tell that story about, you know, subtle ways in which people use BATNAs Um, that are not sort of the way we necessarily think about it as Mm -hmm. an exercise of power. Mm -hmm. Um, It's an exercise, it's understanding about interdependence and independence, I think, yeah.
0: Well, lots to think about (laughs) and to explore and um, love to get you back for more conversations. Thank you for coming over today.
1: Yes, and Debbie, thank you for the full body of work that you've done, not just on negotiating at work, but making sure that people understand how critical negotiation is to practicing leadership in a variety of contexts. Thank
2: you very much. It was a pleasure to be here.
1: Let's remind people about how they can chat with us and with their fellow listeners on our Negotiation 360 website.
0: Well, it's not just the chat that they can have with us and other listeners, but there are other resources uh, on the site. Uh, you can find my Negotiation 360 self-assessment and best practice app. There are links to online courses. And we're putting up articles that you and I have written together and maybe some others as well. So there's lots of stuff on agile negotiation and adaptive leadership. Much of it is free. We've
1: even simplified the URL for podcast listeners. Here's how to find us. Just key in the letter N as in negotiation, and the numbers 360.expert. That's N360.expert, and you'll find us.